Welcome to Tagada Heart Assembly to a class series on Srimala Devi Simhanada Sutra. A one-vehicle Buddha nature teaching. Before uh, diving into the sutra itself, uh, we might look at some background where how the sutra arose and in what context. So uh, if we go back to the beginning, there's Shakyamuni Buddha walked this earth around 500 BC and taught many uh, things that got recorded as sutras, the scriptures of the Buddha. Uh, in those very early teachings, as I recall, there was maybe even there were several even that were called like lion's roar. Simhanada means lion's roar. Sutras. So this, uh, this phrase, lion's roar, uh, goes way back to the early teachings of the Buddha. Uh, when Buddha was teaching something really awesome and really magnificent, especially then it was called the lion's roar. Like, uh, a lion's roar is, um, fearless and very confident and, uh, has no doubt that kind of lion's roar. There were many, many sutras. We now call the Pali Canon, the early teachings of the Buddha. And then um, around the time of Christ, these new sutras started appearing in the world. The Mahayana movement, the great vehicle, Bodhisattva, vehicle began to emerge uh, in this world system. New scriptures attributed to the Buddha, even though his foreign body had not been living on this world for 500 years, uh, these sutras started to emerge. Maybe they were written by other people, but tradition would say that they were um, they were teachings of the Buddha or disciples of the Buddha from that time, but just the, the world wasn't ready for them. So those teachings were kind of hidden, just kind of stored away until the time was right. The first of these Mahayana sutras to emerge was the Pradnyaparamita sutras, yeah. the perfection of wisdom sutras like the Heart Sutra, uh, teaching emptiness that nothing whatsoever can be grasped in any way that everything is not what we think it is. It's empty of graspability. It's empty of our ideas. And along with this radical, all pervading emptiness, uh, teaching came the teaching of the Bodhisattva that, um, 
vow to keep living in the world of uh, suffering beings until everybody was free, lifetime after lifetime, and freeing them with these emptiness teachings. So these kind of went together, emptiness and, and the bodhisattva, compassionate vow to benefit all beings in the greatest possible way. And uh, after these perfection of wisdom, Prajnaparamita Sutras um, started spreading around the world and becoming popular, more Mahayana great vehicle sutras started to appear, like the great Lotus Sutra was pretty early on there too, maybe about uh, 100 by the second century. And uh, the Lotus Sutra taught the one vehicle, which is a theme in this Srimala Devi Sutra. The one vehicle that, that, uh, as the path got more and more complex over these centuries, the Buddhist path got more complex and there were different paths for different types of people, different aspirations. The teaching of the one vehicle came that there's only one way that includes all other ways, the universal, all-inclusive, way, the one vehicle. Uh, you could say it's simplifying all these different complicated paths. And it's saying it's it's universal, it's available to everybody. It doesn't matter your disposition or your past. The one vehicle is universally available. We can talk more about this one vehicle because it's it's one of the main themes of this uh, sutra. And um, the flower ornament sutra came forth a little bit, maybe a little bit after Lotus Sutra around this time, um, teaching various things such as uh, Tathagata Jnana is one of the themes of the flower ornament sutra. Tathagata is a name, epithet of the Buddha, and Jnana means like knowing, direct, non-dual knowing or awareness. And this Tathagata Jnana is, is, became an important theme of the um, Flower Ornament Sutra. Another related theme in the Lotus Sutra, besides the one vehicle, is the eternal life of the Tathagata. The Buddha saying, it looks like I lived for 80 years on, on this earth, but actually... Uh, my life is virtually beginningless and endless. My true reality body is like that. So that's another kind of precursor to this Srimala Devi Sutra. So we have Prajnaparamita, Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, and then the Lotus Sutra develops the one vehicle and the eternal life teaching, and the Flower Ornament Sutra teaches this Buddha knowing and that all, all sights, all sounds and all thoughts are nothing but Tathagata Jnana, Buddha awareness. That's one of the many teachings in the vast flower ornament sutra. And then, uh, maybe another century later appeared in the world the first Buddha nature sutras. 
And uh, these days, the scholars are saying um, that probably the first Buddha nature sutra was the Mahaparinirvana sutra, another long epic uh, scripture of the Buddha um, in the scene of his last few days is before his Parinirvana, uh, the Buddha brought up this teaching of Buddha nature, which is also called Tathagata Garbha. This week's, this, this class's, uh, sutra, it's called Tathagata Garbha, but they're basically synonyms. Buddha, Buddha nature, Buddha datu in Sanskrit, and Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata again means another name for Buddha. And, uh, Garba can mean many things. We'll get into this later, but one, one meaning is it's like the heart of something, like the essence or the heart of something, which is very similar to the nature of something. So Buddha nature, Buddha Datu and Tathagata Garba are very similar, but different sounding names for our true nature. That's what the Buddha nature uh, sutras were bringing out very explicitly for the first time. It wasn't already implied. Uh, now they're really being brought forth that all sentient beings have Buddha nature, our Buddha nature, which is both the, the capacity and potential to um, realize complete, perfect Buddhahood, the same as Shakyamuni Buddha. And uh, also that this Buddha nature is uh, is complete from the beginning. So it's not quite right to call it a capacity, but the Buddha nature that's complete from the beginning makes possible complete Buddhahood. However, for most sentient beings, the, their Buddha nature, our Buddha nature, is is temporarily obscured or hidden by greed, hate, and delusion, and many kinds of delusion, many kinds of uh, afflictive mind states that seem to temporarily block or obscure the Buddha nature. It's not even really obscure, but for all intents and purposes, it seems to get obscured, so we don't feel like Buddha, and we're, unlike Buddha, we're, have a lot of discontent, and we're caught up in all kinds of troubles and so on. But this Buddha nature, this radical new Buddha nature teaching is saying that all, all beings um, actually have the complete awareness of a Buddha from the beginning. And uh, so this Mahaparinirvana Sutra may be the first to, to bring this out. So the Dharma body or reality body of the Buddha is um, eternal and unchanging, which is kind of implied in the, in the Lotus Sutra, but now it's, this term Dharmakaya comes up. The, the Dharma body of the Buddha is, um, is a permanent, everlasting uh, refuge. And, uh, and there's a relationship between Tathagata Garbha, Buddha nature, and this Dharma body of the Buddha which again, we'll explore this more, but the basic relationship is that when the Tathagata Garbha, or the Buddha nature, is completely unobscured, it's not 
um, hidden and wrapped up in all these um, karmic tendencies and greed, hate, and delusion and misunderstanding and dualistic thought and all of this, when it's not obscured by those at all, it's completely unobscured, then it's called the Dharmakaya, the reality body of the Buddha. And when it still seems to be somewhat obscured, then it's called Tathagatagarbha or Buddha nature. And uh, that's said explicitly in this Shimala Devi Sutra. Uh, so there's the Mahaparinirvana Sutra that was maybe um, arose around around the year 200, and then there's a Tathagatagarbha Sutra. It's quite short, shorter than Shimala Devi Sutra. Um, maybe came a, just a little bit after, like. Um, Within the century, within the next century after Parinirvana Sutra, some people would argue that it came earlier. You know, the scholars can analyze the types of language and words that are being used and try to um, date all these, the emergence of these scriptures. It's around the same time, but I think now people say it's probably a little bit later, and that is all about Tathagatagarbha. The Tathagatagarbha Sutra. And, um, and then maybe around 50 years after that, if that was maybe around the year 300, around the year 350, maybe, uh, the Srimada Devi, Simanada Sutra emerged. Which is to say that, um, that sutra, our sutra studying this fall was influenced by all of these previously mentioned major Mahayana scriptures, but especially influenced by the Parinirvana Sutra, that was maybe a century or so earlier, and the Tathagatagarbha Sutra. Those were probably the the only two Buddha nature Tathagatagarbha teachings that came before the Sri Maladevi Sutra. And um and then after Srimala Devi Sutra, maybe some centuries later, these Tathagatagarbha Buddha nature teachings kept emerging in the world in, in the form of sutras and commentaries. For example, the Lankavatara Sutra. It's said to be brought to China by Bodhidharma, our first Zen ancestor in China. That teaches Tathagatagarbha and was probably influenced by Srimala Devi Sutra, but came a couple centuries later. Uh, and those are like the you know, kind of rough dates when these Indian sutras emerged in India. These all came from India. And, uh, and then it took a little while longer for them to get translated into Chinese. Buddha Dharma was flourishing in China. Um, from, from centuries before these sutras came out. And, uh, of course, there's a, a little lag time in, in the sutras emerged in India and started circulating around India and, pe- and becoming popular and getting copied and so on. Then, um, it might take a century or so sometimes for, um, for the Chinese people to walk to India 
and collect and find out where the popular sutras and bring them back and then translate. Sanskrit and Chinese are very different languages and some of these sutras are like a thousand pages. So it took a little while, but people were into it. Why were they so into um, copying these sutras and translating them? I think because they're awesome. <laughs> they were liberating teachings. They were reminding us of our Buddha nature. And, and, and letting us know that this, this kind of good news that, uh, that we all have this perfect potential and perfect nature. From the so, um, it was interesting to me to just look at, you know, this is a little geeky getting into the states and stuff, but it's, we can kind of see maybe how some of this evolved in terms of actual Dharma teachings. That the, uh, the Parinirvana Sutra, the big Buddha nature epic sutra that really popularized Buddha nature in East Asia, meaning China and Korea and Japan. That one was translated into Chinese, um, around the year 430, and the Tathagatagarbha Sutra translated into Chinese around the year 400, so pretty close, right? And then this um, Sri Mahalagodha Sutra translated in 435, five years after the Parinirvana Sutra. So by different translators, though. Um, did they know each other? Dharma Shema, the Nirvana translator and um, Guna Bhadra, the Srimala Devi translator. I don't know. Uh, I never heard anyone try to figure that one out, but it was five years apart. These two similar um, sutras translated, both teaching Tathagatagarbha, both teaching eternal Dharmakaya, both teaching one vehicle, both teaching that Tathagatagarbha is temporarily hidden or obscured by greed, hate, and delusion, both teaching bodhisattva, the vow, and, uh, and uh, so they're kind of related. Luckily, this sutra all fits into 30 pages or something. If you print it small, it's more like 12 pages, whereas the Parinirvana sutra is more like a thousand. And uh, both the Parinirvana and Shimala David became very popular in China and Japan. I think for the Zen school, the Parinirvana Sutra, partly because it's huge, is quoted quite a bit by early Chan teachers in China and Dogen. Even Shimala David Sutra, I looked through all the all the Zen records and um, I haven't found it quoted, but I think it was known. It's shorter, so it might not have been as, you know, what, you know, widespread and quoted as often. But it seems to have been influential in China and particularly Japan. Um, partly in Japan because, uh, um, Prince Shotoku, who, uh, he lived like, um, around, um, in the, Seventh century, like around 600. And, uh, this was around the time Buddhism was coming to Japan. 
maybe during his lifetime, I'm not sure exactly. And maybe bits and pieces were coming before, but he was, a, he was the, um, ruling emperor prince of Japan. And, uh, he was struck by, especially these Mahayana sutras and, um, and very devoted to the Buddha's teaching, which was a new thing in Japan. And so he was a great supporter, Bodhisattva. You know, he built a lot of um, Buddhist temples and monasteries. He sent Japanese monks to China to, to study and come back and bring the teachings. He sent people to go bring the sutras back. And he himself practiced with, I think, a Korean uh, Dharma teacher. And... Um, and did commentaries on several sutras. They're attributed to Prince Shotoku. Uh, there's three sutras. That, I think there's some argument, but I think most people agree that he probably really did do these commentaries. He was a, a kind of scholar, practitioner, you know, between government mandates and stuff, that he was a busy guy. He, was, he had time to make these, these commentaries on sutras to like the court people and they got recorded. He did a commentary on the Lotus Sutra, on the Vimalakirti Sutra, which is another Mahayana Sutra taught by an awakened layman, and the Srimala Devi Sutra taught by an awakened lay woman. Of course he himself was not a monk, he was a he was a emperor, prince, governor person. So maybe that's why he wanted to really say, hey us lay people can practice the way fully too, like Vimalakirti and Sri Devi did. So we have, uh, um, wonderfully, we have an English translation of Prince Shotoku's commentary on the Sri Devi Sutra, and I think it was sent to you in a, in a link for this class. You can download it for free or you can buy the book. And uh, so I've been enjoying that. Uh, looking at that, it doesn't have the sutra itself, and it's, but if you, if you're looking at the sutra, then you can look at his commentary on parts of it and certain lines he quotes in, in order. Uh, so in addition to that English commentary, there are, uh, seven English translations that I know of, of the Srimala Devi Simhanada Sutra. Um, the first one, this is now the history in, in America, right? The first one was translated into English in this world system in 1974 by Diana Paul. That's the translation we're using here or close to it. She did a PhD dissertation on the Srimala Devi Sutra and particularly to Tagadagarbha and Buddha nature teachings in the Srimala Devi Sutra. And that's several hundred pages, and we have a digital copy of her um, her PhD dissertation. If anyone would like it, that can be sent out too. I've been enjoying her. It's it's scholarly, so it's a little too much maybe for some people, but uh, it's looking at the unique Tathagatagarbha teachings in this sutra. And it has a translation, annotated translation, which I was here is not annotated. 
So that one came out in 74. And then I think later she revised it when it went into print with the BDK publishers that we have it now. Uh, but almost the same. Same year as she translated that, uh, Alex and Hideko Wayman translated Shimala Devi Sutra and that one got, was published in 74 and that one's floating around the web also. I have all of these in, in PDF if people really wanted to get into and compare them. Um, yeah, I think the next one was, um, Garma Chan in 83 translated it, the treasury of Mahayana sutras, which is Ratnakuta sutra collection of a bunch of short sutras. And, um, one of them in that collection is the Shimala Devi Sutra. So I think it's the later, it's not from Gunabhadra's Indian translation, but Bodhi Ruchi's, which was um, a few centuries later. So that one, that one might be in the, in the Zen Center library called the Treasury of Mahayana Sutras. And, uh, then I'm Anzan Hoshin Roshi, a Soto Zen teacher in Canada, um, translated the sutra and did it, and maybe even did a Zen commentary on it. Um, he's a Canadian teacher, uh, that has translated a bunch of Dogen and kind of creative translator. So he, he did it. I think it's called the matrix of suchness. And, um, not actually don't have a, a copy of his whole, whole translation. Um, then another Chinese, uh, translating in Rulu, um, translated it just, um, in the last few years. And it's sutra, sutrasmantras.com. He's done a bunch of, Translations that he just offers freely on his website. Um, um, and he has some nice footnotes and, you know, from all these translations are from the Chinese because the, um, the Sanskrit, except for some fragments of Sanskrit, the whole the original has been lost. So, uh, but it was, I think probably the Chinese was translated into Tibetan way back. So, Gyurme has an online translation from the Tibetan of the Shimala Sutra. And the last uh, translation is just um, done this year by um, a translator, scholar, Zen practitioner named Gregory Wonderwheel, who is signed up for this class. And I see he's not here tonight. But I was so happy to see he was signed up. He's a translator of the Shimala Devi Sutra. We were, he's teaching it, um, right now online. So for, um, I hope he'll join our future classes and be nice to discuss points with him. He has very interesting ideas that he kind of says, some of these other translators didn't quite get it right. He says, so, um, anyway, if you want to look for his work, if you, Gregory Wonderwheel, he has a blog and where he's has the whole translation of the sutra that he did in multiple posts and a nice long introduction, big introduction that he wrote to the sutra. And I think he's maybe going to publish it. And uh, also on YouTube, 
Gregory ha- has a series of classes on Shimana Devi, and I think he's doing way more. De- you think this is detailed? I think he's going to do it in like a hundred more classes. <laughs> so you can find a few of his classes up there. And I also found another YouTube class series that somebody in San Francisco is doing a many part series on Shimala Devi Sutra. So this obscure sutra we thought like, who's even heard of this? Some people like it, even in America. I like it. And I've never really like spent time with it before. So you all are my excuse and I'm your excuse to it's a little background of history. And, um, uh, just how am I connected to Zen? Just Buddha nature and Tathagata Garba is a really prominent Zen teaching that I think has not been fully celebrated in, um, in America. Uh, we we chant the Heart Sutra all the time, so we get the emptiness teachings, and we study some mind-only teachings, um, and so on. And Buddha nature is kind of floats around as a term, but there's, I think it's wonderful to bring out this teaching of Buddha nature. There's a whole bunch of sutras specifically teaching Buddha nature, and my understanding, it was maybe even more. Um, kind of uh, seed for the Zen tradition, maybe even more than the emptiness of Prajnaparamita. And I think more than like Yogacara and mind only. But the Zen people took it in new creative kind of ways. The longest essay of Dogen's is Shobogenzo is called Buddha Nature. And he kind of builds it around some quotes from the Parinirvana Sutra on Buddha nature. And uh, he doesn't mention Srimala Devi, but you find the same teachings in the Parinirvana and you can see that influence on Dogen. Uh, in fact, um, Parinirvana Sutra also has a whole bunch of chapters, has like, you know, 50 chapters or something, a whole bunch of chapters called the Lion's Roar. And then Dogen, I think at the very beginning of the Buddha nature essay says, um, Buddha nature basically is the Buddha's lion's roar, Dogen says. And, uh, here we have the lion's roar. So there's some connection between this phrase, lion's roar, particularly celebrating Buddha nature teachings. Uh, okay. So we have the, um, the sutra itself, um, Diana Paul, I thought it was a very nice introduction, short introduction that you can read on your own as part of the PDF. Um, and she especially brings up the, the fact, lest we forget, that Srimala Devi is a lay woman. Not only were this, and she's teaching basically the whole sutra, the scripture of the Buddha. And, the Buddha's there at the beginning. She's very devoted to the Buddha. But she basically teaches the whole sutra. And at the end, the Buddha says, good work. You said it, Srimala Devi. Just like a lion's roar. Um, just like Vimalakirti kind of teaches the Vimalakirti sutra. 
was pretty radical at that time to have a layman teaching the sutra. Even to have a monk other than the Buddha teaching the sutra is a little unusual. Usually the Buddha is in conversation with um, some monks. But uh, Vimalakirti gets this lay person who, who um, keeps kind of poking at the misunderstandings of all the monks. That's kind of like the style of the Malakirti Sutra. And this Sri Maladevi Sutra, she's more polite. She doesn't poke it at, uh, at anyone, but she teaches it. And it may be that it's, as far as a whole sutra being taught by a woman, ordained or made woman, it may be the only one I know of. There may be some others, but it's probably the most popular, well-known one. Taught by a woman and a lay woman, uh, not a not a nun or ordained priest. Uh, she was a queen, another politician. He had a busy life. <laughs> she stopped to um, teach this sutra, and um, Diana Paul thinks that's awesome. And part of her PhD dissertation is she's looking at. Um, Women in Buddhism. And in fact, she wrote a whole book, uh, where she brings up the sutra and other teachings. Um, maybe called, uh, Women in Buddhism. Anyway, if you want a whole collection of electronic books, these could be shared. Or she goes through some other sutras culminating in the Shimala Devi Sutra, but I think it's, Fair to say, the only sutra I know of where um, a lay woman is basically teaching the whole thing, and it's a very important sutra. And she's teaching Buddha nature, and I think part of the, is that random? I think maybe not. I think maybe it's just driving home the point that Buddha nature is really universal, and everyone, including lay women and lay men and ordained men and women, all have the possibility of, of realizing complete Buddhahood. And Paul brings that out. He's a university professor, maybe retired now. She's writing fiction these days. But she has a lot of um, blog posts on feminism, these kind of topics. He's a scholar, too. So, uh, Starting with the title, The Teaching of Queen Srimala of the Lion's Roar. I might translate it as The Lion's Roar of Queen Srimala. Maybe the, maybe the, the, of the Lion's Roar is saying, um, well, she just, that's the kind of person she is. She just has Lion's Roar. She can roar at any time. But, um, if we say the lion's roar of Queen Shimala, uh, that's, I think, saying this sutra is really her quintessential lion roar. So it's, uh, uh, the full title may be something, we don't have it in Sanskrit, but it looks like it's something like Shrimala Devi. Devi means, um, queen, but I think it could also mean like goddess, like devas are the gods and Devis are the goddesses related to the English word divine. But in this case, it means queen. Srimala Devi, Simhanada means the lion's roar. 
Ekayana means one vehicle. Maha Upaya, great skillful means. Vaipulya means like extensive or comprehensive sutra. The Srimala Devi Simhanada Ekayana Maha Upaya Vaipulya Sutra. But we can just say Srimala Sutra. Which actually how they say it in Japanese in Japanese is Srimala Sutra for short. Here it says a comprehensive text that teaches the skillful means of the one vehicle. It's like the full title. Translated from Sanskrit into Chinese by Central Indian Tripitaka Master Gunabhadra. Tripitaka is the three baskets of the monastic guidelines, the sutras, and the Abhidharma psychological teachings. He's, he's a master of all those texts, great translator in 435 Common Era. Chapter one is called Merits of the Tathagata's True Dharma. Begins as all sutras begin. Thus have I heard. But before we go any further into the sutra itself, maybe just uh, how about stop a minute um, and see, do you have any questions on all of that background kind of evolution of, of Dharma? Or was that straightforward enough? Yes, uh, Richard. I was just wondering, um, which came first, the Vimalakirti Sutra or this Sutra? Mm, ah, that's a good question. I'm not sure about that. It might have been around the same time. I think Vimalakirti was pretty early, but that would be nice to know that if, if this was influenced by the fact that Vimalakirti was this layman teacher. Yeah, that would be nice to know that. I'm not sure. It may be that Vimalakirti was earlier because, um, it doesn't explicitly teach Buddha nature. Not that all sutras that came after this taught Buddha nature, but, um, but, uh, Tathagata and Buddha nature, you know, those explicit terms you don't find in any of the Prajaparamita sutras, in the Lotus Sutra, in the Flower Ornament Sutra, those popular sutras, and in the, and in the Vimalakirti Sutra. There's related ideas, but they don't use that, these terms. So that may be that, uh, I would guess that it came earlier, but maybe around the same time. Yeah, I was just thinking because in the in the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's a, a section called the Goddess, right? Where oh, yeah. she sure. teaches the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with Vimalakirti there, he somehow transports people to the Goddess or something, or invites her in to her, to his house. Yes, she she teaches, and so yes. there's that's another, true. Another case of a female yeah. teaching the Dharma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she teaches like a chapter, maybe not the whole sutra, but yeah, that's that's right. She does teach um, in there, and also in the Lotus Sutra, there's a story of the 
the dragon king's daughter, who's this uh, seven-year-old girl or something, who is like, realizes Buddhahood and like the snap of a finger or something, which is also it's a, part of the context here that, 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 um, we don't really have in America. Thank goodness is that in, in ancient India, there was this kind of thing that like in the early teachings that like only men can become Buddhas. There was this horrible sexism and, uh, for various political reasons. So it was kind of like brought out in the teachings and a bunch of male monks kept those teachings alive so they could be proud of the fact and so on. But, um, but that's what's nice and, and, and maybe not so radical to us. Ah, oh, Joel says, um, Shimala Devi Sutra came after Vimalakirti. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So I think we're on, we're on to a pattern. Um, but so, so, and or that women had to transform into men in a future lifetime in order to realize Buddhahood in a male body. And this is saying that whether or not Srimala Devi is a Buddha, she's like a high level Bodhisattva and she gets a prediction of complete Buddhahood. And the dragon king's daughter is, um, a woman and also, a, um, not even human actually. <laughs> and also, um, and also like seven years old. So it's right. kind of like, the Mahayana is really pushing this idea that any this potential is really available to anyone. Well, in the in the Vimalakirti Sutra, at one point in the chapter on the goddess, the goddess Shariputra asks, "At what point did you were you a man in order to learn this?" And she said, "I've always been this way." And I've and she she magically transformed Shariputra into into a woman's body, yes. right? And or trades places with him or something and yeah. just to show it's him that it's really not, not necessary to think about it that way. I mean, and so it does have that kind of gender bending and also yeah. gender defying sort of, mm-hmm. norm, you know, defying those norms. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some commentaries about, you know, sort of background commentary about gender, right. In, in Vamalakirti for sure. Lotus Sutra a little bit that, Dragon King Daughter and this sutra just no special magic, but just the whole sutra's amazing sutra being taught by this woman. Um, yes. Thanks for bringing up the Malakirti. Thank you. Yeah. So yes, um, Chono. So thank you for the introduction and sorting out all of this. And the, uh, it's a similar question in a way to, the one was just asked about um, the relationship of all of this to the the sutra that's sometimes translated as the awakening of faith in the Mahayana, which also is a big Tathagatagarbha. We don't have the Sanskrit, big influence on China. I just, yes. um, it's not so much a chronology question, but could you say something really brief about it's how it fits yeah. in? Yeah, just that the awakening of faith is... I mean, it's, I think it's attributed to Ashvagosa, but I think all the scholars say it was probably written in China. And I don't remember exactly when, but I think after this sutra. And Tathagatagarbha is um, one of its teachings, and one vehicle is one of its teachings. So I would guess that this awakening of faith was definitely influenced by Srimala Devi Sutra. Uh, I think some other themes in there too, actually, from Srimala Devi. And, and Parinirvana, but, um, yeah, 
Yeah. The um and then in China, um, as I mentioned, you know, is a prominent influence on Zen in in early China, like um, people like Matsu, one of the um, pre-Linji ancestors. He uses the term Tathagatagarbha, like um, I think regularly in his talks, um, talking about Zen practice, and it comes up in like um, the Song of Awakening by. Yongjia is an important poem in early, um, in early Chinese Chan, disciple of the six ancestor. He uses the term to talk to Garba. And then as time went on, it seemed like they, they had other ways of talking about it. They, they started dropping the Sanskrit term because Zen was so creative. So they started saying stuff like your original face before your parents were born. So that's like a, a Zen way of saying to talk to Garba. Because they're trying to get out of this kind of Indian sutra talk. But, but the meaning of it really influenced Zen. By the time they got to China, I mean to Japan, I think they were not using to target a garbage. So I think like Dogen, for example, doesn't use Yoraizo, the Chinese for to target a garbage at all. I don't think, but he does use the term Busho, Buddha nature. This is a synonym. Quite a bit. So, thus have I heard. That's how you know that it's a sutra. Ananda, the Buddhist disciple, heard every sutra and uh, memorized them and was able to um, repeat them back. So when you hear, thus have I heard, that's Ananda um, saying, this is how I heard the sutra. Uh, thus have I heard at one time. That's how all these sutras begin. It's also saying, uh, you know, it's nice to begin every sutra with the thus. Because the sutra is about the way it is. It's thus. So we begin the sutra saying, it is thus. Thus we can hear it. Thusness as it is. Such as it is like this. Thus have I heard at one time. And then uh, Prince Shotoka, Prince Shotoku, in his commentary, um, he, uh, he says right off the bat, you know, he's, he goes through every word, like not every word of the sutra, but he starts off, you know, slowly. So he says, um, he says, as for Queen Srimala, she was originally inconceivable. No one knows whether she was a transformation of the Tathagata or if she was a great Bodhisattva on the, on the last Bodhisattva level before Buddhahood called, uh, Dharma cloud level. We're not sure if she was like on the verge of Buddhahood or if she was already a Buddha. But it's kind of this prediction of Buddhahood, so it kind of makes it sound like she's close to Buddhahood and she will be a completely awakened Buddha. Part of the Indian model here is that a completely awakened Buddha is no small matter. Um, and uh 
she took on the form of a woman, just like all men take on the form of a man and all women take on the form of a woman. So she did that to teach this sutra. And we've all taken on, we could even say that Buddha nature has taken on the form of some gender in order to manifest in this world system because that's kind of how it seems to go here. And uh, and then Prince Shotoku talks a little bit more, but then he gets into this line, at one time, thus have I heard at one time. And he comments saying, uh, at one time means that even though the teachings of the Buddha are innumerable, when Ananda, the one who memorized all these, when he attained Buddha's awakened samadhi, like this absorption in Buddha's awakening, which Ananda could enter, then he understood all the sutras at once, at one time. So I think it's Prince Shotoku kind of playing with this idea. Thus have I heard at one time. And this one time is now. And it's the time that the sutras were taught. And it's the time that they're um, commented on. And it's the time that they're translated. And it's the time that they're discussed in Austin, Texas. This one time. So I like that. Prince Shotoku is kind of like expanding our usual sense of, yeah, they were taught at this one time long ago. Or Ananda heard this at one time long ago. Ananda heard this at one time, which is timeless now. At one time, the Buddha was residing in the Jetta Garden, Jetta Vana, of Arnattapandika's park in the city of Shravasti in the kingdom of Kosala, which is a place the Buddha liked to hang out. I think the Buddha's favorite hangout spots where he did like a lot of practice periods, rain, rainy season retreats, were Vulture Peak in Rajagriha, not far from Bogaya, which you can visit today, and Shravasti, in um, Anatta Pindika's Jetta Grove, which you can also visit today. Uh, I once went to Anatta Pindika's Grove where, where, um, where this sutra was taught. And uh, it's kind of run down place now. It's not like one of the popular Indian pilgrimage places, but there's the ruins of all the generations of monasteries there. Over many, many centuries, old stone ruins and places the, the Buddha walked around. And, uh, it's of course set up as a, as a grove still, as a park. No skyscrapers will hopefully ever be built at Anatta Pindika's Jetta Grove in Shravasti. There's a lot of meditators right now sitting there because it's a Buddhist pilgrimage place. At that time, King Prasanajit and Queen Malika, who had only recently attained faith in the Buddha's Dharma, said these words together. So these are, we know from other sutras that that, um, these are actual people who lived at the time of Buddha. King Prasanajit and Queen Malika lived in Shravasti and um, 
we don't, there are no other sutras, I think, that anyone's discovered in which Srimala appears, their daughter Srimala appears. But there's one ancient, I think, Sarvastavada Vinaya text that gets into lots of historical stuff. And I think that says that, that um, King Prasanajit was married to, he had several wives at different times, I think, and one of them was named Srimala. So that's a, probably some ancient history where there was somebody named Srimala. And, um, and uh, this sutra tells who she really is. This is saying it's a, it's a, their daughter. Srimala, our daughter. Srimala, by the way, means um, uh, like um, precious mala, you know. Like a mala is like a string of beads, but also can mean like a garland of flowers, a ring of beads of flowers. And Sri is like, uh, what is that? Um, beautiful, maybe beautiful flower garland. Sri Mala, our daughter, is astute and extremely intelligent. She has prajna. If she has the opportunity to see the Buddha, she will certainly understand the Dharma without doubting its truth. Sometime, we should send a message to her to awaken her <laughs> religious state of mind. It really is to like arouse her mind. And I think the meaning here is um, bodhicitta, is the aspiration for awakening. The mind of awakening is like the aspiration for awakening. And it, when it comes to fruition, it is the awakened mind, bodhicitta. Uh, sometime we should send her this letter because she's in a nearby town. Shravasti actually, it looks like it's like an area. And there's, um, she's living in this town of Ayodhya, which is in Shravasti, like the next town over. We should send her a letter to, um, to encourage her to um, open to the Buddha's teachings because we, her parents, think the Buddha is awesome. We've met the Buddha, Chakyamuni Buddha, because he hangs out in our town, Shivasti. And we've heard his teachings. And our daughter, because she because these teachings are for intelligent people, our daughter's intelligent, she might appreciate them too. So they <laughs> they together uh, mom and dad together say, sometime we should send a message to her. And then mom, the queen is the hero of the two, says, um, how about now? Now is the right time. Together, like, sometime we should do that. And um, queen, Srimana's mom, is like, why wait? Send it now. She could be like dead tomorrow. Like we all could. We got to hear the Dharma when it's available. Like now. So the king and queen wrote this letter to Sri Mala, praising the Tathagatas, the Buddhas, immeasurable merits, and dispatched a messenger named Chandira to deliver the letter to the kingdom of Ayodhya, where Sri Mala was queen. Another city in Shravasti. You know, now entering the palace, the messenger respectfully conferred the letter to Srimala, who 
rejoiced upon receiving it, raised it to her head. Like we put the, we put Rakasu on top of the head, right? Out of respect. And we put the letter up there, letter from her dear parents. And, um, she, uh, raised it to her head and then she read and understood it and aroused this mind, this rare mind that I think it's referring to bodhicitta. She aroused this rare aspiration to practice and realize the Buddha's teachings. By just reading this letter that her parents wrote, praising the Buddha, which I think is kind of interesting that it's not like they wrote a whole sutra down. I mean, maybe they had some teachings in there, but it sounds like Mainly they were to say, the Buddha is magnificent and shining with radiant light and um, he sits and walks so serenely and you know, maybe something like that. And she was so inspired hearing about the Buddha through the Buddha's blessings that um, just that was enough to awaken her bodhicitta, this rare mind, this like, rare mind. Then she said to Chandira, the messenger, she said in the verse, I just hear the name Buddha, the one who is rarely appearing in the world. If my words are true, that the Buddha is now in the world, then I will honor him. In Chinese, Japanese, it's kuyo, which means like I make offerings to the Buddha. Since I humbly submit that Lord Buddha came for the sake of the world. He should be compassionate with me, allowing me to see him. Like, I have this faith now from reading this letter. I have this aspiration to see the Buddha. Dogen Zenji has a whole Shogogenzo essay called Ken Butsu, Seeing Buddha, he talks about these sutras where people just really want to see Buddha. So Dogen, of course, brings that out in his own Zen way. But uh, she wants to see the Buddha. It's the same word, Ken. As in Kensho, seeing Buddha nature. Uh, and uh, I hope the Buddha will allow me to see him. So he just thinks this and says it out loud. Um, wishing to see the Buddha and aspiring to see the Buddha, at that very moment of reflection or thought, it's the word nen, it's the mindful moment, uh, the Buddha appeared right then with her, with her mind moment, this one nen of thought, Wishing to see the Buddha. The Buddha actually appeared. It says in heaven, but it, it's maybe more accurate to translate it as sky. It's the, it's the Japanese word ku that is used to translate emptiness and is used to translate sky. Maybe heaven too. She appeared in empty space in the sky. It's maybe that kind of wordplay. He appeared in the sky. She appeared in, I mean, he, the Buddha appeared in the sky. 
appeared in emptiness. To, and maybe um, that's part of the meaning of the sutra here, that um, that Buddha appeared. I think I think um, Prince Shotoku brings out that point. Maybe that uh, that appearing in skies reminding us that the Buddha's true body is like space. Uh, the Buddha appeared in space, radiating pure light. Komyo, radiating radiant light in all directions and revealing his incomparable body. Srimala and her attendants prostrated themselves reverently at his feet and with pure minds praised the true merits of the Buddha. So there, um, the sutra begins with this like, just honoring the Buddha with, um, and I think, uh, Prince Shotoku, um, notes that his praise is with body, speech, and mind. They're doing prostrations with the body. They're praising with the voice and they're having thoughts of like, the Buddha is amazing and we want to learn. So, um, we do that. We, um, we just did that like an hour ago. In the inconceivable joy Zen hall, where we like make offerings of incense and light and flowers and water to the Buddha. And, uh, in a way we kind of praise the Buddha by any chant that we're doing. And we particularly at the end really, I think that is kind of like a praise at the end when we say all Buddhas ten directions three times, all nine words, Bodhisattva Mahasattvas. It's like a, we're capping it off with this praise. Um, and maybe we're even thinking that's the hard part. Right? <laughs> Not so hard to do prostrations and offer incense and chant, but to actually like have this heart of devotion when we're doing that, especially after we've done it like several thousand times. That's maybe harder, but the sutra is a nice reminder of like, that's how we're going to, we're going to see the Buddha. The Buddha is going to come teach Buddha nature. If we, uh, express our heart of devotion, the more we open our heart, the more the Dharma comes in. I think this, this is not just prelude. I think there's a teaching here. And then there's all these verses. The body of the Tathagata is excellent in form, unequaled in the world, being incomparable and inconceivable. So uh, Prince Shotoku says, that's praising the Dharmakaya, the inconceivable reality body of the Buddha. Therefore, we now honor you. The Tathagata's form is inexhaustible and likewise his wisdom. So he is praising the Buddha's wisdom, prajna. All things eternally abide in him. That's a big teaching. We could spend a while with that, but um, all things are abiding in the Buddha's reality body. But I think this will be brought out later in the sutra. Anyway, so um, therefore we take refuge in you, Buddha, having already exorcised. <laughs> That's a funny translation. Um, maybe we could say eliminated um, the mind's defilements, like greed, hate, and delusion, and the four kinds 
our thoughts of body and speech. Um, so there's various, it doesn't say what they are. So some, I think Prince Yotoku says it's the four elements of earth, wind, fire, and water because the Buddha's body doesn't really have these four things. Some say it's, um, four precepts. Some say it's, uh, um, the four maras, but, um, all, all the, um, obscurations to Buddha have been eliminated by this Buddha. Therefore, we worship, you could also translate as prostrate to you, the Dharma king. By knowing all objects to be known, and by the self-mastery of your body of wisdom, you encompass all things. Therefore, we now honor you, bow to you. We honor you, the one who transcends all measures of space and time. We honor you, the one who's incomparable. We honor you, the one who has limitless dharma. We honor you, one beyond conceptualization. Um, and Rimala says, please be compassionate and protect me, causing the seeds of dharma to grow within me in this life and future lives. Please, Buddha, always accept me. And the Buddha says, I've been with you for a long time already, guiding you in former lives. I now again accept you and will do likewise in the future. I have produced merits at present, Shimala says, and in other lives. Because of these virtuous deeds, I only wish to be accepted by the Buddha. Now. And, uh, and Shimala and all her attendants prostrated at the Buddha's feet. And then the Buddha made this prediction uh, among them. And um, so maybe we'll just stop with this prediction part because we're, we're um, running out of time here. Uh, the um, prediction in, uh, is this word Vyakarana. And again, Dogen Zenji has a Shobogenzo essay called Vyakarana, or um, in Japanese, Juki, uh, that can mean, literally, it's it's referring to these predictions of Buddha. Dogen has a whole Zen-like way of looking at this, and he brings up his favorite sutra, the Lotus Sutra, where there's all these predictions of Buddhahood going on, these Juki. Um, juki, uh, in Dogen's essay, means um, conferring this prediction, and uh, in this sutra, it's almost the same character, but it means receiving the prediction. Like jukai is sometimes means conferring the precepts and sometimes means receiving the precepts. Two slightly different characters. This one is juki, receiving prediction. So, um, uh, which Dogen kind of looks at as like confirmation of Buddhahood an affirmation of Buddhahood. It's not really something that's going to be in the future, according to Dogen. But in the old days, it was kind of like, in many, many lifetimes from now, you will become a Buddha. That's how it is in the sutra. Um, but Dogen says, this juki, this prediction, is the great way uniquely transmitted by the Buddhas and the Zen ancestors. At the time of this juki prediction, there is becoming a Buddha. At the time of prediction, there is practice. 
And confirmation, it's juki, is you are thus, I am thus too. That's how they say it in Zen. It's this prediction, according to Dogen, is the face breaking into a smile. The story when the Buddha holds up a flower and Mahakashapa's face breaks into a smile. That's Dogen's take on this prediction. Um, but in the sutra here, it's uh, after Srimala ex- says, please accept me, the Buddha does this juki prediction um, amongst all, all the attendants and Srimala Devi. You praise the true merits of the Tathagata because of your virtuous deeds. After immeasurable periods of time, you will become sovereign among gods in the deva realm. In all lives, you will continually see me and praise me in my presence in the same manner as you're doing now. You'll also make offerings to innumerable Buddhas for more than 20,000 eons. So you're going to evolve in this very gradual way. Dogen talks about this prediction as like, instant confirmation of Buddhahood. That's the Zen sudden style. In the sutra style, it's all going to happen, but it's going to be spread out over a long time. The Buddha can see this. Then you, Srimala Devi, will become a Buddha named Universal Light, Samantha Prabha, the Tathagata Arha, perfectly enlightened one. And you'll have a Buddha land with no evil destinies, and no suffering due to old age, sickness, and death, and so on. Um, and uh, it will be a Mahayana pure land, Buddha Kshetra, a Buddha field. And, um, and everyone will want to um, live there and practice there. So that's part of the Mahayana Sutra thing starting maybe with the Lotus Sutra in a big way, is that these predictions that all these ordinary people, like anybody, can get a prediction of Buddhahood. But to get a prediction of Buddhahood from a Buddha is no small matter. And it might take some time, but um, because they're on track, they will become a Buddha. And the Buddha believes, you have this name in this Buddha land. So it's like that. She's basically a Buddha already teaching these Buddha teachings, but in the, in the old Indian style, even if you're right on the edge, it's still going to maybe be eons and eons before this complete Buddhahood because it's so complete. And, uh, when Queen Srimala had received this prediction, innumerable gods, humans, and other beings vowed to be born in her land. And the Buddha predicted to everyone that they would be born. So all Shimala's attendants are like, well, when she's a Buddha, I want to live in her land. Because <laughs> we're, we're already her friends and attendants and we, we know her. So we want to, she's going to be a Buddha. We want to live there. And the Buddha said, you will. Well, so I was hoping we'd get a little further tonight, but that's the introduction and background. And we won't be able to go through every line of the sutra because it's too long, but uh, we'll pull out the highlights. Next is her, these vows she makes after this prediction of Buddhahood. And uh, you're welcome to read the sutra ahead. You're welcome to listen as we go. You're welcome to look at Prince Shotoku's commentary and other translations. 
and I hope that um, maybe the last three classes, the, the last half, will really focus on Tagata Garva and Buddha nature because I think that's a, a really awesome teaching, some of it unique to the sutra. Anything um, before we conclude? Questions, comments? Yes, David. So um, the metaphor of uh, one vehicle, I assume we'll get to it. It's just, it's sort of an interesting metaphor to use, like you're, you have something that's taking you from one place to another. I'm um, just trying to, um, is there a significance of using a metaphor like that in this context? Yeah. Um, I think we could understand vehicle or yana, um, as, um, not necessarily like a car or a truck, but, um, but as a path, it's like the, but it is interesting that I think the literal translation is more like vehicle. Um, there's different different pathways to awakening um, that we'll see, like the Shravaka vehicle, the Pratika Buddha, the Arhat, the pre-Mahayana vehicles, like pathways, and the Mahayana Bodhisattva vehicle sometimes gets equated with the one vehicle. But, but in the Lotus Sutra, it seems a little bit more like even the Bodhisattva Mahayana vehicle is just part of this one vehicle. Everything gets equalized in the one vehicle, the one path, maybe we could understand it more like that. One way. The Ekayana, the one vehicle. And um, yes, there is a whole chapter on this later. And um, maybe if um, Gregory Wonderwheel um, comes to the next class, one thing he says in his long blog introduction to the sutra is he says, one of his, one of his, like, um, you know, critiques of that everybody causes it's a Tagata Garba Sutra, the modern commentators and Americans is because there's this class of sutras, not that many of them that teach Buddha nature or Tagata Garba explicitly. So it is, it's a Tagata Garba Sutra, but he said we shouldn't, we shouldn't classify it that way. We should call it a one vehicle sutra because that's really the point is the one vehicle. So, um, Maybe he can tell us why he feels that's even more important than to target a garba. And I think in the sutra itself, it says that there's actually synonyms to target a garba and one, and ekayana or one vehicle, Buddha nature, and this one path that everyone shares. Surprisingly or not surprisingly are actually the same thing. Yes, thanks for that. Okay. Well, um, cause all the, the merit of Srimala Devi was enabled her to meet the Buddha. All the merit she generated in past lives through her good deeds. So any, any merit we've generated by, um, listening to the sutra tonight, we, um, we give it all away, which actually increases it. And the more we give it away, the more it increases and we offer it to all beings everywhere. May they all benefit inconceivably. May our intention equally extend to every being and place 
with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become.